This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Forensic science often plays a critical role with criminal investigations and has drawn popularity from TV shows like CSI and Cold Case Investigations. However, it's a broad field that includes anthropology, photography, art, pathology, and more. A recent year-long investigation found a lack of representation from natives and other people of color in the field. Stay with us. We'll speak with Native people working in forensic science about their experience after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. An Oglala Lakota woman will lead a position to coordinate resources to find missing and murdered Indigenous people. The South Dakota Attorney General's Office is announcing the hiring of two women to address the issue as well as human trafficking. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger has more. Indigenous people make up a disproportionate number of missing person cases, about 60% in South Dakota alone. Many of those cases can get lost between jurisdictions. Allison Morissette's new job is to bring the state and various tribal nations together to solve those cases. Morissette, who worked in the Pennington County State's Attorney's Office, says the position is needed. I am excited to network more and to get organizations, law enforcement agencies, um, nonprofits, everybody to the table so that way we can try to target this issue. After a series of delays tied to funding, a Native nonprofit announced it would fund the first three years of the position in the state. Democratic Representative Pri Poirier brought the bill to establish the position nearly two years ago. She said the position is off to a promising start. There's a lot of hope, not no pressure, <laughs> but there's a lot of hope in this position. But there's many people across South Dakota who want to see this position successful. Attorney General Mark Vargo is also announcing the hiring of a human traffic coordinator. He says Mary Beth Hallsworth will build on efforts of various survivor networks for those who've been trafficked. Hallsworth spent 13 years with an organization dedicated to preventing child sexual assault. Vargo says the two positions are linked. We all face some of the same problems and we have to face them together. And it is my hope that these two women will be the, a huge step toward ensuring that we are uh, united, uh, that we are coordinated, and that we are doing everything we can for our citizens. Vargo says the next step is establishing an advisory group of state and tribal law enforcement, leaders, and community members who are closest to the problem. For National Native News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City. In California, tribal leaders are joining Native American state lawmaker James Ramos and law enforcement on Wednesday to learn about the implementation of a new law, which alerts the public when a Native person goes missing. The Feather Alert notification system is similar to the Amber or Silver Alerts, which are used when children are abducted or missing or when seniors are missing. The new Feather Alert system is intended to help law enforcement act more quickly in notifying the public and produce leads to help find missing individuals. The discussion will be held in Gold, California. The Interior Department has announced new policies and procedures that aim to make consultation between the federal government and tribes more interactive and transparent. 
Under Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the new policy will require department staff training prior to tribal consultation. The new policy also outlines specific goals for consultation with Alaska Native corporations. The announcement follows a few others from the department in the last month regarding the allocation of millions of dollars in climate change funding to tribes nationwide. Brian Newland is the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs. These investments in Indian country first and foremost reflect President Biden's commitment to Indian country. But it's also a reflection of Secretary Holland's leadership here. At least two reports from the Government Accountability Office in the last four years have chided federal agencies for inadequate consultation with tribes. The Interior Department's announcement was made during the 2022 Tribal Nations Summit held last week in Washington, D.C. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You've probably seen those car ads, low price, low payments, but when you get to the dealer, there could be a catch. If a dealer isn't honest when it comes to its car ads, tell the Federal Trade Commission at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. A year-long study published in Forensic Science International in September found that people of color are underrepresented in fields related to forensic science. The study contends that forensic science is also less diverse than the populations they serve. Forensic scientists examine and analyze evidence from crime scenes and elsewhere to develop a narrative that might help solve a crime. The field is broad and includes many different types of careers and tasks. A forensic scientist might document a crime scene with a camera, they could analyze DNA from samples, or they could determine a cause of death. Today on our show, we'll speak with Native forensic scientists about this important work and what drew them to their careers. We also want to hear from you. Do you have questions about forensic science? What unique perspectives do you think a Native person working in forensic science has to offer? Share your comments and questions by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Or you can leave a comment on our social media pages. Our handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line in Sunbury, Ontario, in Canada, is Dr. Kona Williams. She is a forensic pathologist and a coroner. She's Cree and Mohawk. Kona, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Kona, my first question, what exactly is a forensic pathologist and is your job anything like what we see with the crime shows on TV? So I'll answer the, the second question first. No, um, I actually think it's, it's better. Uh, I absolutely love what I do. Um, so forensic pathologists <clears throat> like myself, we are medical doctors. So we go through a lot of training. 
um, what we need, what we do basically is I'm going to go to med school and then we do a residency in pathology and pathologists are also, they're subspecialist physicians for the most part and they work in hospitals. So they are diagnosticians. They're the doctor's doctor. They, they diagnose diseases. So for example, if you have something, you know, that they take a biopsy of, they take a little bit of tissue they're like, well, is this cancer? Is this not cancer? That little bit of tissue will be looked at by a pathologist, and the pathologist will make the diagnosis. And that's huge um, because everything that happens to that person after that diagnosis or after you know what the pathologist says is a result of that. And so for that reason, pathologists have the lowest error rate, I think, of all doctors. Now, forensic pathologists, are they have subspecialty training. So, you know, they go through their their medical school, then their residency in pathology, and then they do a fellowship in forensic pathology. And that's where you really learn the art of not only medicine, but forensic pathology itself. So looking at um, injury uh, in the context of the medical legal system, injury and diseases, and trying to pull that all together with all the medical knowledge that you have um, to get to the diagnosis, which is the cause of death. So what role does forensic science have then in the criminal investigation? Well, so forensic pathologists, um, if there is an autopsy, if somebody has died, uh, our job is to find out how and, and what led to the death of that person. It can be very straightforward um, for medical legal cases. So it can be something as simple as, well, did this person have a, a you know, die of a drug overdose, or, or was it, you know, something else? Maybe they had some disease with, you know, on board that, that led to their death. All the way to if somebody has been um, hurt or killed by somebody else. Uh, occasionally, the forensic pathologist is the only person who knows, aside from whoever it was that did it. And so we see things on, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other, from one end of the spectrum of life to the other. So from the very, very young all the way to the very, very old. Uh, and it's death and understanding how somebody died uh, is as individual as, as birth. Mm, that's profound. So a typical day for you, Kona, are, are you mostly performing autopsies? So for me, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that I have to keep busy no matter what, otherwise I get into trouble. So I... Typically, my days are, are mixed. So there's some days where I'm downstairs and I'm what do you call on service or in the morgue and performing doing autopsies. There are other days where I'm in court testifying on usually homicides or criminal trials. There are days when I am teaching and, and I teach quite a bit, not just in the morgue, um, but also I, I teach a course at the local university in forensic pathology. Um, there are days where I can just sit in my office and write my reports and be, I've got a little treadmill desk that I, you know, that used to walk and keep active and I can just be by myself for those days. Um, and then there's other days where I'm doing, you know, work on a national level or an international level. So it's, it's very variable um, and it keeps me on my toes and most importantly out of trouble. <laughs> now, you're the first Indigenous forensic pathologist in Canada. Why do you think more Native people aren't drawn to the field? I, you know, pathology isn't exactly 
um, something that most medical students, they, they, you know, they go into medical school thinking that's what I'm going to do. So it's, it's a very, you know, specialized area and it's not really um, well known even to, to the average medical student. So it does take a little bit of digging to get there. Uh, there is, you know, there aren't very many medical students who are Indigenous, unfortunately. Um, so there's a, a real lack of representation from First Nations, Métis, and Inuit uh, people in medicine in general, let alone, you know, going into either forensic science or like I did in forensic pathology. So, I mean, there are some of us. We are, you know, there's a very few number of us, uh, and a lot of us do reach out. And so, you know, by doing things like this, we're hoping to attract more young Indigenous people to to these areas um, because they're fascinating. Um, and, and it's it's a lot of fun. I, I really, like I said, I really enjoy my job. Do you ever have people say to you, hey, look, Kona, you're a Native doctor. There aren't a lot of Native doctors out there. We need your expertise helping to keep people alive, not working on them after they've after they've died. Yeah, actually. So there's this stereotype or this this sort of pigeonhole where you where a lot of Indigenous students, medical students particularly, they're sort of pushed towards uh, like family practice and then going to work in their communities. And and that's I mean that's needed as well, but it's not for everybody. And I knew it wasn't it wasn't for me. And I remember my dad saying, you know, like you were going to work with dead people. Like really, it's great to have a doctor in the family, but dead people. Like really, jeez. Oh, <laughs> and it just happened that the the year that I finished and I started practicing as as a real friend, I got my first like job, and my dad's like, "You're finally like, I don't have to tell people you're in grade 33." But <laughs> I started working, and that's when that missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry really picked up steam in this country, and so you know I didn't think I'd, I I thought I'd just be a forensic pathologist and that was it. But because I have that other side, um, you know, that I grew up with, uh, and not only that, but then the, the missing um, children and unmarked burials, that's really getting rolling as well. Like my dad went to residential school. My mom went to Indian day school. I grew up with that history and knowing um, all of that. So having the, that perspective on top of the expertise that I have, uh, I think was really to me, it wasn't something that I expected, um, but I realized how important um, having those two uh, in, in one person really was. And so it's, it's, it's terrifying and it's exciting and it's very humbling and it's very – the responsibility of what I do is, is enormous. Kona, I appreciate you mentioning MMIW and, of course, the, the residential school burials. Now, are you lending your expertise to any of those investigations on, on the residential school grounds? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so one of the things when, when that broke, the story broke uh, out in Kamloops, um, there was a real need for the sort of technical expertise and information to get out there because, uh, you know, the average person is not going to know much about the death investigation system. You know, you'd hope that you wouldn't know much about it. Right. Um, so what I had I suggested and asked for was a national advisory committee composed of experts, so archaeologists, anthropologists, um, geneticists, arch archivists, like lots of people who can tackle this work, but could give that information to nations and communities and families um, so that they could decide for themselves, okay, well, 
this is, you know, the reality of our, our situation, how can we then proceed and who do we talk to and how can we do this the right way? So, so that national organization has been created and I am on it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just starting to get, to get going. And, and our goal is really to, to give families and nations and communities that information um, so that they can make the decisions for themselves. Kona, death in, in some Native communities is a taboo topic, and I'm interested to know your people, the Cree and Mohawk, do they have uh, certain beliefs around death, and does it make it difficult at all to do your work uh, in light of your culture sometimes? So it, it does, um, and there are, you know, there are always protocols um, and, and ceremonies around death which are different uh, across the country. And, and so I don't know everything about them. I'm not a, a knowledge keeper in that respect, but I do understand that there is a lot of, um, I don't know how you'd say it, um, concern about the kind of things that I would be doing. And that's where the communication comes in to, to talk to people and to, to have that relationship with the nations involved so that they know what it is that we need to do and that we understand from their point of view um, what we're doing. Um, we're completely disrupting and interrupting their, their practices and, and their grieving processes. And it's really important for us to know that and to respect that and to develop those understandings so that when the worst thing does happen, it's not a bunch of strangers who are showing up. It's people that they know and they understand what's happening. And, and we can work together to address um, the issues and the concerns, which, which are very real. Um, the death investigation system hasn't exactly been very kind to Indigenous people uh, in this country, and I'm assuming it's probably similar in, in a lot of places. And so we're going to have to take a short break here. We have Dr. Kona Williams on the line. We'll be right back. Navigating the world of book publishing can be difficult if you're an aspiring author. Some Native authors have opted to publish their books themselves. We'll talk with some self-published Native authors on getting their stories out to the public. That's on the next episode of Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're discussing forensic science, its importance, its various related careers, and Native representation within the field. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation with a comment or a question, you can do that by calling 1-800-996-2848. If you've ever had a question regarding forensic science, uh, we'd sure love to hear them today. That number again, 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we're joined now by Dr. Kona Williams. She's a Cree and Mohawk forensic pathologist up in Ontario, Canada. And Kona, uh, when we started the show, I asked you, is it anything like television, what you do? And I think a lot of us, we 
envision a forensic pathologist working in some ultra high-tech autopsy room, investigating mysterious high-profile cases, hot-headed detectives, you know, pressing for these quick answers. And you said, no, it, it's not like that. It's actually better. It's better than that in real life because you're there in real time. Uh, but we've also heard um, these reports that, that the field of forensic science, it's been subject to criticisms. And, and some of those include racial biases. And I want to ask you, have you experienced any of those uh, criticisms personally? Oh, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, being being First Nations, I can't, you know, I can't hide what I am or who I am. Um, and, and there's always, especially in, in an ultra competitive environment like medicine, there's always that, you know, the stereotypes um, with, oh, well, you know, you, you only got here because of your background or you don't deserve to be here. Um, and, and that just follows you no matter how hard you work. Now, it doesn't matter, you know, what you what you're able to accomplish. There's still that perception that Indigenous people are not supposed to be in positions like this, um, which is wrong. Absolutely. We need to have Indigenous people in these positions because you need that voice. Um, and systematically, I mean, the healthcare system, again, is, is set up in a design to do exactly what it does. And it hasn't been very kind to Indigenous people either. Um, and that happens even now in this country with, uh, you know, with the healthcare system that we have. It is still very obvious and it's still very antagonistic towards uh, Indigenous people. Um, and and that's, that's a real shame. Um, it's not going to you know, it's not going to go away in my lifetime, I don't think. It's going to take many, many lifetimes in order to, to address that completely. But mm -hmm. um, with people like me and, and others who are, who are in the system and working really hard to address them, I think it's possible. Now, I'm thinking it has to be really tough at times emotionally uh, in that situation, especially when some of these cases are the result of violent acts or tragic events. And especially I'm thinking of young victims or, or native victims how do you cope with that, Kona? It is it is tough, and, and I'm not going to say that it doesn't it doesn't bother me. Um, you know, every now and then when I do do work on a case, and it, it's you know a young woman, um, an Indigenous person um, who's died violently, it, it's hard not to think about how that could have easily been me. Um, you know, and it's it's hard not to detach yourself from that, but. At the same time, I've got 14 years of training behind me, and you know, I put my my mind to work because there's a family waiting for for those answers. There are lots of people who are who are who need that information, and that's my job. So I'm able to put it that way. I'm doing a service, and and I do my job well. Dr. Kona Williams, she's a forensic pathologist and a coroner. She's also Cree and Mohawk and sharing with us uh, a little bit about what goes into being a forensic pathologist. Speaking with us now from Albuquerque, New Mexico is Ramona Emerson. She's a writer, filmmaker, and retired forensic photographer. And she's the author of the novel, Shudder. Ramona, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you, it's good to be back. It's good to have you, Ramona. And you spent more than 15 years as a forensic photographer. Can you give us an overview of the job? Uh, well, sure. Um, I When I started, I started as a, a videographer, a forensic videographer, and eventually over the years became also the photographer. I worked for a private firm here in Albuquerque 
Um, so my boss had mobility issues at some point and I started taking the photos as well. But, you know, there's a lot, I think when people think of forensic photography and forensic videography, they think um, automatically of the television, seeing people, the people who are there taking pictures of the body, taking pictures of the crime scenes, um, of evidence, footprints, things like that, whatever's on the scene. Um, but that's not all forensic photographers do. Um, we also are very involved in litigation issues, the, you know, the legal system. A lot of our work comes from people who are still alive. Um, and so, you know, we do a lot of things like videotape depositions. Um, I do a lot of uh, data recovery, um, you know, pulling um, evidence from uh, photos, text messages, things like that from phones, from people's personal devices, um, you know, enhancing um, police body cams, um, enhancing audio on police body cams because they're standing on the freeway um, so that we can hear what's going on better. Um, so a lot of my work, um, yes, there are some scenes that involve death. There are scenes that um, involve some pretty intense situations. So I have to, you know, photograph um, a lot of evidence. And that's really what the job is about. And it, it incorporates so much more than people know. I think um, all the minutiae of getting uh, evidence ready for trial or uh, preserving evidence um, for a case that hasn't been tried yet. Um, so there's a huge amount of responsibility that goes with the work because you are maintaining a chain of custody for the police department and you and for attorneys and for the legal system in a lot of cases. And so you have to know how to uh, preserve the evidence that you've received, and you also need to know how to process that evidence um, and, you know, do a do a good report. So when it does go to trial or um, when whoever, whenever justice is brought for the victim, you have all of the evidence there. And it was correctly done, you know, because just the mishandling of evidence or the altering of evidence can, you know, ruin a, a whole case for people. So... It seems like it's just standing around at the crime scene and taking photographs, but it is so much more than that. Yeah, it really sounds like it. And what did you like most about the work, Ramona? Um, I think at first it was just a paycheck. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> you know, I was a filmmaker and I didn't, I could not find a job um, working in the film industry when I graduated from college. And this was the first job I was able to get. And um, so it was, it was great to be paid and it's not a bad, it's not a bad living to make. Um, mm -hmm. but I really enjoyed the fact that I was doing, I was doing film and photography work that was affecting people's lives. And so I felt a, a huge responsibility and a, a big part of my job was making these things called, um, day in the life documentaries. And I would go and spend days um, with a family who perhaps had a family member who was injured or a family member that passed away. Um, and it was my job to basically tell the story of what their lives were like after this accident happened, after, you know, they were um, hurt on the, on the uh, operating table, whatever it is, whatever the case is that I'm working on. And so my job was to make sure that it never got to trial. 
to make, because if I make this documentary about this family and how they've been affected or how a victim has been affected, maybe now they can't walk. Maybe now their parents have to take care of them and feed them. You know, there's a huge amount of, of money and litigation that goes into that. So it's my job to make sure I make a documentary so uh, egregious, so um, intense, so sad that it, they don't want a jury to see it. They don't want a judge to see it. And they were able to settle a case. They just settle right away. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It sounds really intense. And well, it's it's really, really inspiring that you've been able or you were able to combine uh, this career with, with your passion as an artist and a photographer. And, and this ultimately led to you writing a novel that's uh, very much based on, on what you experienced as a forensic photographer. Uh, the novel is titled Shudder. Tell us more about it, Ramona. Well, um, I had been a documentary filmmaker and, and a few narratives. I had just been doing films for years, and I was encouraged by some mentors to, you know, really explore my writing. I just It's something that I knew I could do, but I don't necessarily like to do it a lot. <laughs> um, and, you know, somebody finally got let in on the secret that I could write and really encouraged me to do so. So um, I started thinking about some of the stories I had learned um, when I was working and, um, you know, kind of my own experiences as a Diné woman and how, what that, what the implications of that are as well, you know, and then I, I just brought in another element, the paranormal and started to work all the kinds of short stories and things that I had been working on into one story. And it turned into what Shudder became to be, which is kind of a mixture of um, crime fiction um, a coming-of-age story, and um, a kind of a paranormal horror novel. So it kind of it kind of covers a lot of a lot of genres, but it's really you know about an Navajo woman who works in forensics and what her experience is like, being that she can speak and communicate with people who have passed over, and it was something that she um, knew about and worked with as a young child, like she knew she had this power from day one. And so, um, you know, and it kind of talks about cultural implications of both worlds and what, what's involved in all of that. Well, earlier talking with Kona about um, so many native cultures that um, are very hesitant to talk about death and, and some of these issues. And how did you work around that uh, when writing Shudder? I think, well, as far as, as that goes, I think um, the Navajo, the Diné, are one of the most superstitious um, about death and about talking about death. And I know it's something that I was brought up to fear. Like, you can't even talk about it because it's like you're asking for it. Um, so it was a it was a scary thing to, to try to put myself into. And I had a lot of second thoughts, like, should I be writing this kind of things? But um, at the same time, I know it's a conversation that we need to have. And I did a lot of research about where our beliefs about death came from. And I felt very, I, I felt like we were, that whole belief was something that was kind of imposed on us, you know, through uh, the introduction of disease and the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, and a lot of what we believe is based on some of that stuff. And so a lot of the research I was doing was like, it's not so much that we are, we should fear death 
or I always knew that there was another world that was going to be happening, but it, it was always made to be such a negative space. And it's like, why? And so I just, I felt like I, I needed to have this discussion because I think we all need to have this discussion. And instead, I think our fear of death and our fear of talking about it really is something that people use against us. And I think, you know, funerary uh, industries around Navajo communities take advantage of our fear and are, um, are, are, are not wanting to deal with it. And so I think it's a conversation that we all need to have um, as, as the Dene people about our, our next steps in this world and um, our reluctance about it and our fear about it. Ramona, that is a really unique perspective that you offer, and it's one that I, I have not heard before with regard to uh, some of these colonial influences with regard to how your own people and perhaps other Native people view death. Really, really fascinating. And, and let's go back to your career as a forensic photographer. Um, did you, were there any other Native uh, forensic photographers that you worked with during your career? Never. I ever never and I have never met another. Um and it's it's kind of I've and the other thing is I've never met another woman who worked in that industry as well. Anybody else who I know who works in this industry are men. Um and white men. So I I I really think that it would be as far as something like um you know what what if there was, you know, there's a crime scene going on in Gallup, which we know happens. I mean, are there Native, are there Navajo forensic photographers working there and doing that work? I doubt it. And I think a lot of it is cultural. I think they just don't want to be there. But then at the same time, police officers, doctors, you know, there are people, there are Navajo people besides forensic people, besides pathologists that deal with death on probably on a daily basis. And those careers being one of them. And how do they deal with that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's <laughs> I, I think that there's a real there's a real lack of women and, um, of course, women of color in, in the forensic photography um, field. And I don't know why that is. Um, it's sad. But I, like I said, I'm the only one I know. I don't know another woman who does that work. Ramona, can you think of any examples or, or cases where um having more native or, or Navajo or, or even female forensic photographers would have benefited a case that you worked on? Um, you know, I think there were um, a few cases I worked on that were on the Navajo reservation and a few of them were photography gigs. A couple of them were day in the life documentaries. Um, I've had a few depositions uh, with um, elders, you know, things like that. And I think it puts, it put them at ease to see somebody like me behind the camera because I'm kind of intrusive when I do this kind of work. I'm like right there in your house with a big video camera or a big, you know, camera in their face. And I'm taking photographs of their personal things and them and their children. And, you know, it's, it's a very intrusive thing to do to come in and do that work. And um, I think it puts them a little bit at ease to have somebody who comes from their community who can, somewhat speak their language or they have they understand the cultural norms they understand the cultural implications of some things and so i think it 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 really is good to have somebody like me come into a navajo family's home and do that documentary work as opposed to somebody who's a complete outsider because i felt like they forgot i was there i was just Mm -hmm. another one of them and they forgot i was there 
And it really also helped me in my work as a documentary filmmaker because I think I was slowly training myself to do the same kind of work as a verite documentary filmmaker, which is to just become part of whatever you're filming so much so that they forget you're there filming them. Um, and they're able to act natural and they're able to, to give you the best footage possible. Ramona Emerson, she's a writer, a filmmaker, and a retired forensic photographer. She's Danae, and she's the author of the novel Shudder, which is uh, very much a, a worldview of experiences that she had as a forensic uh, photographer for more than 16 years. She worked in that field, and uh, it's a, a work of fiction, but she definitely includes uh, lessons learned, both culturally and technically, uh, from being a Danae forensic photographer. Uh, folks, if you've got any questions, any comments at all regarding our show today, again, the subject is forensic science and native people who work in the field. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. The number again, 1-800-996-2848. We have another guest on the other side of this break, and uh, we've got more to talk about, lots more to talk about regarding natives working in the field of forensic science. We'll be right back. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking to Native experts about forensic science today. We're getting firsthand accounts of their experiences and what they liked about their jobs. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can. Think of it like career day on NAC. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to share your comments on the air. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest is joining us once again from Oklahoma. Harvey Pratt. He's an armed forces veteran and a forensic artist. He is Cheyenne and Arapaho. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Harvey. Thank you, Sean. Well, Harvey, we had you on the show earlier this fall to talk about your sculpture at the new Native American Veterans Memorial. And before the show, we talked a little bit about your career as a forensic artist. And that brief conversation was so interesting. I really appreciate you coming back to talk more about it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, let's get into it, Harvey. Uh, you worked for 40 plus years uh, as a forensic artist, and you also have worked in law enforcement. And I would imagine that the, the field of forensic science uh, evolved and changed a lot during those four decades. Can you talk about that? Oh, sure. When I did my first drawing in the late 60s, uh, when I was a young uh, patrol officer for Midwest City Police Department, and they knew that I was an artist and that I had done some things in they had a particular case that uh, uh, was doing drive-by shootings and home invasions. They didn't call him that in the late 60s, but that's what he was doing. And, and uh, he had killed a man and wounded a woman, shot her in the face. And I, they asked me to go over there and interview her because they didn't think she was going to make it. And I had never done that before, but I did. I went over and, and interviewed her and talked to her and made a drawing. And she said, that looks like him. And, and we used that, and we were able to catch him based on that drawing. 
And uh, probably if I had never caught that first uh, that first one, I probably would have never done another one. But since that time, I've probably done over 5,000 witness description drawings, uh, about 2,000 soft tissue reconstructions, a couple of hundred cranial facial reconstructions, along with uh, age progressions and regressions and, and a photo retouch and cleaning up bad photographs. And, and so it was important that uh, I had a connection with pathologists because they gave me a lot of information and and then photography, we had to use a lot of photography on on uh, reconstructions, and uh, so that was important. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of those cases, we had to kind of help our way along. And some of the things that I that I evolved through were things that I helped create and develop. Uh, I first started using color on witness description drawings, and and uh, and then the cranial facial reconstructions. I I would, if we weren't sure of the weight after the anthropologist would tell us the age, race, and sex approximate, then I would, uh, I would reconstruct a, a human skull with uh, using uh, three different weights if we were unsure. So there was just a lot of involvement, and and the interview techniques that I developed are being used now across the across the land. I've taught ca classes all over the United States and concerning forensic art and how to use it and and uh, what you have to do to make it better. So. It's, uh, it's been an involvement of, of, uh, of the growth, and now you see uh, the computer-generated age progressions are. Uh, mm -hmm. They look they look like uh, real real people, you know. And mine were all drawings of age progression type, but the computer right. has right. made yeah. a big change. Absolutely, because I mean, you're talking 1960s. I mean, that was just you with with uh, with pencils and pens and paper. I mean, you were just doing it all just uh, like freehand. And now, I'd imagine they have software and all kinds of fancy computer programs that that do a lot of that heavy lifting for the artists. Yeah, yeah. You see that I, you know, I I still stay fairly active. I retired, you know, five years ago, and. Uh, from law enforcement uh, as a forensic. My, my first 20 years was, was as an investigator primarily and, and secondary as a forensic artist. But uh, when I retired, uh, the legislators interviewed me and wanted to know who was going to continue doing the forensic art, and, and they didn't have anybody. So uh, they, uh, created a, they created a law and made me the state forensic artist, and I stayed another 20-some years. So I have 51 years in law enforcement. Uh, which enabled me, and I work cases all over the United States. I work cases all over concerning unidentified bodies, uh, age progressions, uh, witness description drawings, and like I said, when I first started doing it, they were done in pencil, and and I started doing them in color. You know, I'd, I'd make a drawing and then I'd color it. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I that other agencies started seeing what I was doing, and they started requesting my my assistance on their cases. Well, Harvey, over 5,000 witness drawings, uh, thousands of soft tissue reconstructions. I, I know you worked on on the Ted Bundy investigation and some other high-profile cases as well. And were those any different than than some of the lower-profile cases that you worked? Well, you know, when you're dealing with uh, serial murders and, and uh, multiple cases, uh, you know, you're, you're just a piece of the puzzle. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a piece of the puzzle because uh, the pathologist uh, gives us information, the photographers give us information, and, and witnesses give us information. And so my, my, uh, one of the things that I, that I, I thought really helped law enforcement was my interview techniques on victims and witnesses opposed to suspects. And there's a different way to interview people and, 
and to extract information from witnesses that uh, actually see more than they think they did. And so there's an involvement uh, in the in the arts and, and the techniques, and and I know that there's there's things that hopefully they're we're continuing to grow in the in the area of forensic art, you know, and and mm-hmm. pathology, photography, and investigators are learning more about DNA and and you know I've done cases, uh, you know I did the, the Green River, the I five killer, uh, I did uh, uh, several other serial murder cases. Uh, from across the country that, that had a lot of, you know, a lot of bodies and, and just a matter of trying to identify those bodies when they're found and, and put a, put a name to the face. Yeah. Yeah. It's just uh really intriguing. And Harvey, you mentioned when, when you retired, uh, there was nobody to take your job. So they wanted you to stay on a, in a, in a consultant's role. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, with so many uh, talented Native artists out there, I'm interested in knowing why perhaps other Native people haven't been drawn to the field of forensic art, because uh, I'm thinking it's got to pay pretty well. Well, you know, the, the problem is that uh, it's a specialized it's a specialized art, you know, and they don't have the access to uh, to the interviews and to witnesses, and and uh, they don't have access to the photographs, and mm-hmm. and uh, so they don't have the opportunity to do something unless they try it on their own, and then they're they're kind of like I was when I first started. You're kind of flying blind, you know. So you develop your own technique, and and then once I developed my technique, I had to have the credentials. So I, you know, I went to the FBI uh, forensic art school uh one and two and then uh i did uh, then i attended uh cranial facial reconstruction with clyde snow and, and betty pat gatliff they were uh local anthropologists and artists and they taught me that cranial facial reconstruction technique and and uh then i i went to a photo retouch school because i was i was already retouching unidentified bodies painting out wounds and and opening up eyes and and, uh, but I needed the credentials for test for when I go to testify in court as an expert. And so I, I ended up going to a, a photo retouch school. And, and uh, you know, so you just do those kind of things to enhance your career. And, and if, if you're not already in law enforcement, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting into those areas. Right, right. Uh, that training you're describing, FBI training, law enforcement training, you've got to have your foot in the door for sure. So somebody couldn't just come in off the street and say, hey, I want to be a forensic artist, doesn't sound like. And I have a lot of people approach me with that, wanting to know how I got into it. So I try to tell them, you know, if if you want to do this, there's a good chance if you if you get on with a small agency that you'll never get the opportunity to to uh, to, to expand your your expertise and, and your technique. I said you got to get on with a big a big department, you know, a state agency mm-hmm. or a big, a big metro area that there's a lot of cases, you know, that you can get your foot in the door and start doing those things. And, uh, and then and they'll allow you to train. But if you're a small agency, you know, and you only have one homicide a year or something like that, and you're just going to have a hard time uh, building a career in, in forensic art. And I was I was lucky. I went to a state agency uh, after I got my degree and in uh, police science, and uh, and that that opened the door for me because they were they, they were doing so many more cases, you know, and and a variation. So that that helped me a lot where I was able to to get some exposure in, in uh, those different areas. And some of those areas are areas that I developed. The soft tissue reconstruction is 
was one that I didn't, I didn't know of anybody that was doing that. I, I and I used it through photography. So photography was uh, was in a new area concerning unidentified bodies and photographing uh, human skulls and and how to photograph human skulls. I had to I had to teach agencies if they're going to send me a a human skull to to reconstruct. Uh, sometimes they'd, they'd actually ship me the skull, and sometimes they would. They, I'd say, "Well, you can do it with photography," and I had to show them how to how to photograph the skull. You know, mm-hmm. a right and left profile, full face on top, under under underneath, and behind. You know, I would do a whole series of photographs and take the mandible off and photograph the teeth, and and then I got then I got to to uh, looking at uh, teeth and of of, of the, these unknown victims, and and I. I Became acquainted with a couple of dentists, and and uh, I would take the skulls to them, and they would look at the teeth, and they could tell me the type of uh, of, of metal that was in in fillings, and and where those came from, and and uh, then they would tell me that uh, uh, one particular case, that the, the dentist told me this person had an abscess when she was killed, and and that helped us narrow down our field, you know, when we found some some possible victims, and we found one that had a, that she had an abscess when she went missing. And that helped us to identify her, you know. Wow. So I think it's important. You open up the venue, you look at a lot of different areas, and that's what I try to do. I try to, I try to, to look at a lot of different things, you know, uh, the photography and the anthropologist, and 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 when we start looking at uh, uh, what's in the bones and and what kind of water did they drink and what kind of what kind of food did they eat, that kind of gives you an idea where someone's from, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, some just a, a little clue like that, like you mentioned, like with with the teeth and and some of these other small little details that I would imagine just took. It's probably t- again, you worked for forty years, so I'd imagine it, it just took you decades to to get that expertise, so you could you could see those those little subtleties that were so pivotal in in providing the right information for these cases. Exactly, and you know, and then, then you try to share that with other investigators so that they could, you you broaden their 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 uh, expertise where they're they're asking more questions. You know that just like when you interview a when I'd interview a victim, you know, or a witness to a crime, I don't let them just say, "Oh, he's twenty or 30, You know, I do, I don't let them do that. I, I I make them pin it down to a specific age. You know, a specific hair color, not just blonde. There's all kind of blondes. There's all kind of brunettes. You know. And those kind of things, and and ask questions about right-handed, left-handed, and and weight, and uh, and, and if uh, if they noticed anything about this suspect that we're drawing, it did he, you know, did he had a uh, impairment? Was he did he limp? Did he stat? You know, did that something wrong with him that you noticed? You know, that did you notice an expression? Did he repeat phrases? You know, just a lot of things that that I, that you ask a witness that that you. Don't let them get away with just saying, "Oh, he's blonde," and he was probably twenty to thirty, and uh, you know, and maybe, you know, just be real general. I don't let them get away with that. Right, I, I right. A, you need you need the details for sure. For, let's bring Ramona back into the conversation. And Ramona, I'm curious in in your career as a forensic photographer, did you ever work with forensic artists uh, like Harvey and, and deal with some of the the interesting technicalities of, of the field, like he's describing? Maybe some of the strange technical stuff in the field, but I never got to work with a forensic artist um, or doing anything like that. But I am, I do know about photographing skulls. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's just certain things like people don't realize um, the details that you have to go into as far as 
photographing something like that. And it's true, like you have to take everything apart and photograph every single piece and then put it back together and photograph it whole. And they'll get a roll of photographs of one thing, a hand or a, um, an item of clothing, all kinds of stuff. So, okay. yeah, I mean, a lot of details that go in this, the photography side of it. Kona, how about you listening today to our other guests, Ramona, forensic photographer, Harvey, a forensic artist. Is there any overlap between what you do as a forensic pathologist and working with some of these other people in the field? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things people have to realize is that we work as a team. There's a huge team of people um, behind the scenes at every uh, you know, death investigation. So I rely very heavily on forensic photography. Um, and I have worked with uh, forensic artists as well as anthropologists and toxicologists. All of these people, there's tons of work to be done. Um, and in different types of fields and, and different, um, you know, different careers. And, and again, like we work as a team. And so one can't do the job without the other. Now, forensic pathology, you talked earlier about the, the training that goes into it, and that's a, a highly specialized field, and it's competitive. It's, it's tough to get into, isn't it? Can anybody just coming out of medical school hope to get into forensic pathology? Well, you can, yeah. I think medical school is probably the hardest hurdle um, is to get in. And then once you're in, um, I would say to anybody who's going or thinking about forensics is definitely try it out. Um, talk to your friendly neighborhood forensic pathologist, you know, go hang out with a coroner, um, but also look at everything else. Like, don't limit yourself. Make sure that you explore other things. That's how it happened for me. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, you know, it was just serendipity that I ended up here. And it's a good thing um, because it's, it's a great career. Um, and, and I don't think there's a whole lot of doctors here quite as happy as pathologists. Mm, interesting for sure. Well, folks, we are going to have to, to wrap up this show now. It's been a really interesting discussion. I want to thank our three guests today, Dr. Kona Williams, Ramona Emerson, and Harvey Pratt for three very enlightening Native perspectives into the fascinating world of forensic science. Join us again tomorrow when we talk with self-published Native authors about their books. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreement CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.